In this week's Parsha, Parshas Toldos, we meet two very different twins. After decades of infertility, Isaac and Rebecca, they each go to their corner and they each pray. And the Almighty grants them their request and they are blessed with twins. And these two twins are very different. The older one, Asav, he's a redhead. He's a rambunctious one. He is ruddy. He's a trapper. He's a hunter. He's a man of the field. And Jacob, he's more studious. He's the scholar. He dwells in the tents of Torah. Now, our sages point out that these two twins, they were identical. Our sages emphasize that they came from a single drop. These are identical twins, not fraternal twins, yet they seem to exhibit opposing characteristics. And each of the parents, Isaac and Rebecca, they seem to take a liking for one of the twins. Isaac loves Asaph because of the trappings in his mouth. Asaph would feed him the succulent meat and the barbecue and the brisket. And Isaac apparently had a likeness for that, whereas Rebecca, well, she loved Jacob. And our whole partial orients around the tension between these two sons and how the two parents treated these two sons. Even before they were born, there was fighting, there was scuffling, there was struggling in utero. And when they were born, there was a mad dash to be born first. Asaph was born first, but then Jacob stuck his hand out and snatched the heel of Asaph, trying to leapfrog him. And once they mature, they go in very divergent paths. Jacob is making a stew. Rashi tells us it's the food for mourners. Abraham had just passed. And Asaph comes from the field, and he's hungry, and he's tired. And the Talmud says, well, if the Torah tells us that you're tired, it's not telling us about how much melatonin is in your system. It's not talking about your circadian rhythm. If the Torah is talking about you being exhausted, it means that you're spiritually exhausted. You've been spiritually depleted of energy. Says the Talmud, this indicates that Asaph as he matures into an adolescent, he has gone to a very different path and he has transgressed all manners of severe sins and he became spiritually exhausted. And he sees the food and he's hungry and we have the sale of the birthright in exchange for the birthright. In exchange for all the rights that come with being firstborn, Jacob gives Asav, the stew. And later on in the parasha, of course, we read about the Passover heist. Isaac is under the impression that his end is near. He's 123 years old, Rashi tells us. Ultimately, he lives till 180. So this is 57 years before his actual passing. But he is concerned that his end may be near. And he wants to give prophetic blessings, blessings that will definitely be fulfilled, he wants to give that to Asaph. Now, Rebecca gets wind of it, 
and she orchestrates the Passover heist. It was Passover. And why that's pertinent is, of course, a question we could perhaps explore. It's Passover, and Isaac tells Asaph, go to the field and go trap for me some animals and make me a rack of ribs, make me some delicious meat that I really enjoy, the way you, you know how to make it, like a wicked barbecue. And then I'm going to give you a blessing that will endure for you and for your descendants forever. And Rebecca is aware of this. Her sages tell us that she had a prophetic window into this conversation, and she was able to orchestrate this heist. And she tells Jacob to impersonate Asaph, and they make a rack of ribs of their own. And Jacob disguises himself as Asaph, and he wears his clothing. And while Asaph's trying to trap his game, Rebecca prepares a feast for Isaac. And Jacob walks in, and because Isaac is blind, he cannot see that this is Jacob, not Asaph. Jacob is garbed in Asaph's clothing, and he portrays himself as Asaph. And he dupes his father into giving him Asaph's blessing. And Asaph finally catches his game, and he too prepares a feast, and he brings it in. And then they discover this heist that was pulled off. And Asaph vows to kill Jacob. And the Parsha ends with Jacob fleeing from the wrath of Asaph. So the whole Parsha is about these two children, these two sons of Isaac and Rebekah, the grandsons of Abraham, and the conflict between them. Now we know, the Ramban talks about this extensively, that all the events of these individuals are really symbolic of the cosmic, of the existential conflicts, not just between these individuals, but between the nations that they spawned. Jacob is going to found the Jewish people. He's going to be renamed Israel, and his 12 sons constitute the 12 tribes of Israel. And what Jacob stands for, it's not just a family, it's an ideology. It's a Weltanschauung. That's a word I haven't said in a while, but it's my friend Scotty's favorite word. And he just popped into the Torch Center a couple of days ago to visit. So I found a way to work it into the podcast. Jacob and Esav are going to found nations with different worldviews, with different missions, with different Weltanschauungs. And they are going to be at odds, and there's going to be a conflict between these two ways of living. And all that's being played out on a microcosmic level between these individuals, Jacob and Esav. And these conflicts are going to really get to the heart of what it's going to happen with the world. What's the destiny of the world? We have a struggle for supremacy, Jacob versus Asaph, a struggle for domination. What will be the destiny of the world? And Asaph is going to have a head start. He is going to emerge first. But like Jacob demonstrates in our Parsha, Jacob and the nation of Jacob will ultimately prevail. We're told 
in Scripture, that the final battle before Messiah will be the war with Asav. The saviors will ascend to Mount Zion to judge Mount Asav. And then, after that last domino falls, God will have dominion. So we're reading about a family, of course, and the struggles that they had and the conflicts that emerged. But this really gets to the heart of what conflicts lie at the fulcrum of the world and determine where things are going to go. Now, it's really interesting if we look at this family. This is the Abrahamic family. Abraham started something wondrous, and he was selected by God, and he lived up to the anticipations of the Almighty for humanity, and he called out the name of God of the world, and he began a movement of monotheism, and he has a family. But among his descendants are people that chose a different path. Of course, his eldest son is Ishmael, and Ishmael's not the heir of Abraham. Isaac is. And Isaac has a son, Esau, and Esau is not the heir of Isaac. They each go in their separate ways. Now, we talked about this a few months ago. Maybe at some point in the future, those other Abrahamic strands will reunify. But it's interesting that we have these offshoots of Abraham. Now, Ishmael, it's almost understandable. He's not the son of Sarah. He's Abraham's son, but not Sarah's son. He didn't have the full Abrahamic pedigree. But we have Esav. He is the son of Isaac and Rebekah. He shares the same biological makeup as Jacob has. They're twin brothers. They spent months in close proximity in utero. Yet somehow, Esav goes awry. He becomes a wicked person. He becomes a sinner. He becomes a foe for Jacob. He becomes an enemy to his family and to what they stood for. How did this all happen? Why did Esav go bad? And this is a subject that we've talked about in the past. And there are a lot of different angles and threads in it. And it can veer into being somewhat Kabbalistic as well. But I wanted to discuss one idea that's featured in the commentaries. I think it's an idea that's very important. It's one of the most critical cogs of our life design. Here at the Torch Center and here at the Parsha Podcast, we're striving to unlock and develop and actualize our potential. And we're trying to design our life so that we can maximize the opportunities that the money presents to us. When we study the story of Esav, we're going to discover some very important and practical insights that will help us be positioned, ourselves and our children, for greatness. Now, this idea that we're going to convey with the help of the Almighty, 
we're going to present it from two totally opposite takes on the parsha. So we have two different ways to present the same idea, and they're going to be opposite ideas, but the principle is the same. So let's begin. The Torah tells us that Isaac, one of the three patriarchs, he loved Asaph. Asaph that we know is trying to kill Jacob. We know is going to be the founder of the nation that is in opposition to what we stand for. He's the grandfather of Amalek, the individual who spawned Amalek, the nation. But Isaac was oblivious to that, apparently. He loved Asaph. Well, why did he love Asaph? Because he made a wicked barbecue. If you read the Torah, it seems like a stinging insult to Isaac. Isaac is one of the patriarchs. The Talmud tells us that in the future, the Almighty will want to punish the Jewish people and Abraham will not be able to save them and Jacob will not be able to save them. Only Isaac will be able to defend the people. And when the Torah says that he had a weakness for the barbecue of Esau, is this really what he cared about? Is this why he favored Esau over Jacob? What is going on with the Torah's portrayal of the Esau-Isaac relationship? So we have to understand something fundamental. And this is an idea that we like to talk about a lot here on the Parsha Podcast because it's so, so, so important and very often overlooked. Every child is different. Every person is different. And everyone's born with different temperaments, with different strengths, with different inclinations, with different qualities, with different personalities, both the positive and the negative, the strengths that we have and the weaknesses that we have, the flaws that we have. Each one of us is a unique, never-before-seen combination of strengths and weaknesses and shortcomings and personality. We spoke about this last week, like the Talmud tells us, everyone's face is different. And just as everyone's face and countenance and visage is different, so too everyone's personality is different. But of course, we're not supposed to take this sitting down. We're here to improve. We're here to fix our flaws. We're here to develop ourselves, to actualize our strengths. We have to identify what are the qualities that we have going for us? What are the positive aspects of that cocktail that we were delivered with? And once we identify the strengths that we have, we have to develop them, and we have to strengthen them, and we have to buttress them, and hone them, and sharpen them to ensure that we develop them into their fullest potential. And we have to identify our weaknesses as well, and try to fix them. Or if we can't fix them at a minimum, try to avoid them. To avoid instances where they're going to flare up. So we're here to improve. 
we're here to develop ourselves. We have a set of qualities and flaws, but we can change to a point. This is the critical point. We can change, but there's some things that we cannot change. There are some core elements of who we are that are unchangeable. And if you try to change those things that are unchangeable, it's both futile and dangerous. Like you have in an operating system, there are some files that are not core to the essence of the system and you can delete them without any damage. But there are some elements of the software that are deeply rooted in the operating system. If you remove those or you alter those, it's going to harm the entire system. So to a human, there are roots that we all have. And those roots are fixed. The branches can be trimmed, can be manipulated. There are parts of our personality and our collection of things, of aspects that determine who we are that are changeable. But there are also parts that are completely fixed and immutable and unalterable. And of course, the wisdom is to figure out what exactly falls under this category, the category of changeable, and what is unchangeable. That's why life is so difficult, or one of the reasons why life is so difficult. You have to know what you can achieve if you work hard, if you invest in yourself, if you're determined and you have perseverance and grit. Some stuff are changeable. And you have to know what falls into the other category of unchangeable. And it would be dangerous even to attempt it. So imagine you have those files on the operating system and you want to delete or alter some files, but they're not clearly labeled. You don't necessarily know which one is changeable, which one isn't. The Gona Vilna in Proverbs, he breaks down our characteristics into three categories. There are things that we have a natural tendency or an affinity towards. Those qualities are relatively easy for us to acquire. If someone's just a naturally gregarious person, naturally amiable, loves people just naturally, well, for them to become a person of kindness, who cares for others, who's empathetic for others, that's much more natural for someone like that versus someone who is somewhat of an introvert and is uncomfortable around other people, just as an example. But that's category one, the things, the qualities that we have a certain foothold in naturally, and we have to work a little bit, yes, to develop it and to strengthen it and to acquire it, but we are already halfway there. That's category one. Category two are the qualities that go against our nature. It's very hard for us to acquire those qualities, but they are still within striking distance. If you bend yourself, if you push yourself, if you work really hard, you can acquire them. Yes, it'll be difficult, but it's not impossible. 
And then there are qualities, there are aspects of our personality that are so hardwired, there's no way to change them. Stuff like that are so deeply rooted in our core, they're so immutable, they're so fixed. If you try to change that, you're going to break the whole system. The verse in Proverbs tells us, Educate the young as per their way. And then, even once they age, even once they get old, they will not depart from it. The Goan of Vilna explains, we all have some essential character that is unchangeable. It's inborn within us. And he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says that there are certain people who have a tendency to be a blood shedder. They have this insatiable lust for blood. But they still have a choice how to deploy that characteristic. They could become a butcher and they get to hack away and slab away at meat and there's lots of blood spurtling everywhere. And that is a kosher outlet to their quality. Is it a mitzvah? No, it's a occupation like any other. And there's nothing wrong with making an honest living. If you're a butcher, you have a way to have an outlet for your bloodlust. But this same person can use this same characteristic and channel it towards being a murderer, being a thief, being a menace to humanity. And that would be, of course, an evil way to channel this characteristic. And then you have the mitzvah version of that. The same person with this same bloodlust can become a mohel, can become someone who does circumcision. I know with my boys, I just could not look at the actual circumcision. I'm too queasy. Even when I had the great fortune of holding my own son as he was being circumcised, I couldn't look at it. Everyone's different. And then you see people who love to crowd around to watch, to see every part of what's happening. Everyone's made differently. But if you're a mohel, well, then you have a critical part in doing this incredible mitzvah to bond young Jews to their creator in heaven. And you get your fix with the blood. And you've done an incredible mitzvah. The same quality. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. This person will be a bloodshedder, says the Talmud. But that does not impact their free will. Their free will is not whether or not they can be a bloodshedder or not. That's fixed. But how to deploy this unchangeable quality That is their free will within the parameters of what is unchangeable. They're not condemned to be wicked. It could be good. It could be bad. It could be neutral. And that's what it means to educate a youngster as per his ways. Design his life. Set up his life 
So that way, those qualities that are in line with how he was born, he should use that for good. And then, when he gets older, when he's already advanced in years, he won't depart from it. You did not ask him to do something that violates his inborn and unchangeable nature. And therefore, it fits. It dovetails. There's no dissonance at all times. But if you try to set up such a child in a way that they have no outlet for their bloodshedding, you may have temporary short-term success. You may get that kid to sit down and stop asking questions and do their work and be obedient. And you may say, well, we won. But that's a Pyrrhic victory because the inborn nature is unbreakable. Asav was born with all the signs of being a blood shedder. He had ruddy skin. Rashi tells us it's a sign that he is going to be a blood shedder. He was really hairy. The sages tell us that that's a sign that he's complicated. Everything's tangled up in him. Everything's ensnared in him. He is not one of those kids that's just super easy to raise. Raising him is not going to be easy and seamless. But what do you do about it? How are you supposed to treat a child that's delivered to you like that? Well, how did Isaac treat Asaph? And this is where the commentaries diverge. Some say that Isaac, he displayed total mastery in how he raised Asaph. Isaac loved Asaph because of his barbecuing prowess, because he was a gifted hunter. Isaac knew that Asaph ain't no Jacob. This kid's a bloodshedder. And he encouraged him to try to develop this skill, develop it in a way that's not harmful or destructive. Work on your marksmanship. Improve your shot. Become a better trapper. Learn to uh, pan sear the meat. Get a meat thermometer. The right temperature, the best wood pellets. Make an old joke that uh, middle-aged men, they have to get into something. It's either World War II or barbecuing. I don't know if that's true or not. But that's what he was trying to do. And that's why he loved him. He found a way to love him for who he is. Are we really thinking that Isaac, a prophet, son of Abraham, father of Jacob, one of the three patriarchs. Is that what he cared about? All day he was just drooling. Oh, at nighttime we're going to have that rack of ribs. We're going to have that ribeye. Is that what we think of Isaac? He's a patriarch. He's building the nation. He's trying to fix the whole world. He's operating on the highest level. Is that what he cared about? Of course not. But he loved Esau 
because of Asaph's unique characteristics. He knew that this is his nature. And he wanted to give him a kosher outlet for his desire for blood. Kill. Watch all that blood tumble out of the game. Trap and hunt and sharpen your sword. But kill animals. Don't kill humans. Butcher the meat. Carve it all up. But don't allow your inborn and unchangeable quality to take you down a bad road. Isaac celebrated Asaph's still. He wanted to show him, Daddy loves you, and I'm proud of you. This is a textbook example, the commentaries tell us, of exquisite parenting. What's important to you is important to me. If this is what you're into, if this is the way Hashem created you, let's do it properly and let's celebrate it. Isaac wanted to turn Asav's characteristics into a positive. He makes some wicked barbecue. That should be celebrated. You would imagine he sent him to karate, jujitsu, little league, Mixed martial arts MMA. That's what Isaac was doing. And that's what the Torah tells us. He loved him. What's their love about Asav? Well, he does make some incredible barbecue. Let's celebrate that. So this is the first school of thought on this particular subject. Isaac loved Asav. Why? Because of his cooking skills. He knew who he was dealing with, and he tried to accommodate, and he tried to channel, and he tried to find a way to make Asav emerge as righteous. But it didn't work, despite Isaac's best efforts. Asav went completely haywire, and he totally careened off the path. Isaac tried to redirect Asav's bloodthirsty talents to more benign pursuits. But for whatever reason, Asav chose a different path. So the first school of thought says Asav was like this fixed, and Isaac tried, wasn't able to, but he tried to raise Asav properly. Now there's a famous and important and I must advise you, very, very controversial essay from Rav Hirsch on this subject, on the education of Asaf. And he takes the opposite approach. He says that Isaac and Rebecca, they failed to account for the differences, for the immutable and unalterable differences between these twins. And to a certain degree, there is some culpability on Isaac and Rebecca for how Esav turned out. Now, if you read this piece, it's it's like a stinging, withering 
criticism of Isaac and Rebecca. If I were to write this essay, I would be canceled right away. You need to have a lot of guts. and need to be a big person to be able to make such an argument. So this is not my argument. I'm just telling you what Rav Hirsch said. And he quotes the verse. The verse says, Vayigdulu hana'arim. These young people, they grew up. There was a rearing, a raising of these twins. In some way, they were pooled together. And he quotes the Midrash. The Midrash says that there was some degree of uniformity in how these twins were raised. Until their adolescence, there was insufficient effort to differentiate them. And that is why Asav went awry. Isaac and Rebecca treated them the same as Jacob when they were youths. And because they failed to account for the individual nature of Asav, the inherent and inborn and unalterable and immutable nature of Asav, and they raised him as if he was just another Jacob. That's why he went awry. Every child needs to be directed and guided in the path that's fitting for them, in a path that is bespoke for them, in a way that is uniquely tailored for them based upon who they are, their attributes, their qualities, the inclinations, all those things that are deep-rooted within the essence of who they are. He tells us that this is true both in trying to raise someone who's a mensch, who's a good person, and in trying to raise someone who's a good Jew. The Jewish ambition, what we're hoping to raise as the next generation of righteous Jews, it's, it's really one thing people that live for a purpose, people that live with a connection with the Almighty, people who live with righteous justice and kindness and fastidiousness in how they view their spiritual lives. The goal is the same. But the ways to get there are manifold and varied. Last week we spoke about Dr. Jenikov. I was looking at some of our email correspondence. In his very first email that he sent me many years ago, he wrote this line. This is a quote. Everyone who finds God finds him in their own way. In a multitude of ways, humans are different and we're unique. And the way for each individual to flourish is likewise unique. And that's why every child needs to be raised Alpidarko on their path in a way that is fitting for their personality and for their temperament. And then Hirsch drops the bomb. This is a quote. An educational pedagogical system that places a student like Jacob and a student like Asaph on the same bench in the same school with the same daily schedule and with the same approach to learning and raises them both for a life of study and a life of pursuit of wisdom, 
necessarily will result in one of them getting ruined. For Jacob, this rigorous, intense framework of learning and spending time in the tent, that's going to work wonders. He's going to gobble it all up and it'll draw from the wellsprings of wisdom with focus and with intensity and with passion. And that will just deepen over time. But what happens when you thrust Asav into that same system? It's going to backfire. It's going to result in him yearning, pining for the day that he could finally cast away all those old dusty books. And with it, the mission, the life approach, the Weltanschauung that that way of life promoted. Those kids were raised. They were grew up, they grew up together. Asa was raised alongside Jacob with the same system, with the same environment, with the same schedule, with the same expectations. He was bound to rebel. Says Rav Hirsch, had Isaac and Rebecca understood on a deep fundamental level the depths of the nature of Asaph. Had they asked at a very early stage the question, how can someone like Asaph, with his specific set of strengths, he's very brave, he's very daring, he has passion. If they ask the question, how can we direct that for good? He could have emerged very differently. He would have been a warrior regardless. But he could have been a warrior for God, a warrior for good, a warrior to eradicate evil, a warrior to defend the underprivileged and the innocent, a warrior to fight for justice. He was going to be a warrior, regardless of what you did to him. But because they directed him to the books, to the ways of the scholar, they failed to cultivate his warrior tendencies for good, those tendencies were commandeered, were appropriated for bad. Now, had they gone along a different path, says Refersh, Jacob and Asaph could have remained allied. Each, in their own unique way, could have done their own unique contribution towards advancing the cause of Abraham and the world. They could have worked in tandem, in unison, each contributing their gifts towards the cause. There could have been this counterfactual world wherein the sword of Asav would be mobilized, would be brandished to advance the Torah of Jacob. That's what could have happened. But alas, it didn't. Those kids were raised together. And they were raised indiscriminately. And only once they matured into adolescence, they became men. Everyone's so shocked to discover that these two brothers who emerged at the same time, from the same parents, from the same womb, from the same drop. And they received the identical education. And they were raised the same and they were taught the same. Everyone is surprised that they're so different. 
Thus concludes Hirsch. Now, again, if I were to write this essay, I'd be canceled. It's just too controversial. But Hirsch is an authority of renown and repute. And the principle that he's saying is unchallenged. So whether or not we're saying that Asav was going to be a bloodshedder and Isaac tried to accommodate that, or we're saying Asav was going to be a bloodshedder and Isaac failed to accommodate for that, the principle is agreed by all. Every child is a one-of-one, a unique, never-before-seen combination of skills and qualities and essential nature. And each needs to be treated as such. Parenting, education, pedagogy cannot be formulaic. There's no set script or protocol that you could follow. It's completely dynamic. But know this, says Rafersh. If you raise any two children in an identical fashion, necessarily one of them, at a minimum, won't live up to their full potential. And who knows, may be damaged like Asaph. If everyone's unique, there must be a unique and tailored approach for every individual. I want to throw in another point. This is me talking here. But it relates to this idea of Rav Hirsch. Our sages tell us that Asav made another appearance, so to speak. And that's David. David is Asav 2.0. It's interesting that the word Admoni, which means a ruddy person, a red, reddish person, it appears only twice in Scripture, once with respect to Asaph and once with respect to David. So the good version, the positive version, the ideal version of Asaph is David. David became what Asaph should have become. Now, if you think about it, there is one fundamental difference between the environment in which David was raised, and Asa was raised. And it's almost the opposite ends of the spectrum. Asa was a twin. He had a brother who was the same age. So it's quite natural for Asa to grow up together with Jacob. Asa always had Jacob next to him. David was a shepherd. Not only that, he did have siblings, but he was ostracized. He was a pariah in his family. The Talmud and the Smidrash tells us that they thought maybe he was a bastard. He grew up alone on an island. He was always alone. Discriminate parenting? The discriminate raising and developing of people? It's much easier when there's no one else around to measure against. Who knows what would have happened if Asaph was born five years before Jacob and they weren't raised in tandem. Maybe this point that Rav Hirsch is saying, it would have been somewhat mitigated because again, when there's only one kid around, it's much easier 
to think about what does this child actually need. So again, I'm just adding another point to the same principle. And I think this principle is a really valuable lesson. Of course, it's important for us as parents, as teachers, as people of influence. But frankly, this is also true with ourselves. We are the kind of people who want to improve. We want to refine ourselves. We want to get better every single day. You want to find your flaws and fix them. You want to find your qualities and develop them. But it's a tricky subject. Because there isn't this formula that you could follow. If we were all, you know, programmable machines, this whole human experiment would be a lot easier. But all of us are atypical. Because that's the definition of a human. There is no typical. Everyone is their own mystery. And part of this mystery is fixed. Immutable, unchangeable, and unalterable. And you have to understand that. What is so deep-rooted that it's descriptive of the essence of the thing. The first thing that we're told about Asaph is that he was ruddy. That's the first thing. That was at the basis, at the foundational root level of who he was. Everything that comes afterwards is more incidental. It's more changeable. But him being a bloodshedder was not changeable. That was going to stick regardless. Does that mean that he'll necessarily be a sinner? Of course not. That can be channeled towards neutral, towards good. And whether or not Isaac tried to do that is a dispute. Some of the commentaries say, well, he tried to the best of his ability. That's what it means that he loved Asav because of Asav's warrior tendencies. And others say, no, that he failed to accommodate for that. But everyone agrees that that is priority number one of anyone trying to develop what is their essence that cannot be changed. There are other aspects that are changeable, each according to its degree. But awareness of this principle goes a very long way to helping set up ourselves, of course, our children, our students, our charges for fantastic success. We're trying to raise our intelligence here at the Parsha Podcast. We're trying to raise our IQ. We have an idea. We have an I. Now it's time for a Q for a question. We're going to ask a question that will hopefully make us a touch smarter, a smidgen smarter about the Parsha. And of course, about everything else. Because there's only one thing that we know documented, clinically proven to make a person smarter. And that is the study of the Almighty's Torah. When Jacob was instructed by his mother, much to his chagrin and overriding his objections and protests, when he was instructed to go impersonate Esav, he was clothed, he was garbed with the garments of Esav. 
And those garments covered him, not completely, because his hands were exposed and his neck was exposed. But he put on these garments. Rashi tells us that Asaph had given these garments to his mother for safety. He didn't trust his wives. But what is the origin of these garments? So the Midrash tells us that these garments have a long history. When Adam and Eve, after they ate from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, they were naked and they became aware of their nakedness. So the verse says, chapter 3 of Genesis, that the Almighty God made leather garments for Adam and Eve and he clothed them. Those garments are the same garments that we're talking about over here. Now, after Adam had it, it went to the future generations. Eventually, it made its way into the ark, says the Midrash. After the flood, Ham, Ham, the son of Noah, he somehow acquired it. And he bequeathed it to Nimrod, who was the mighty warrior and the ruler of Babel. And he's the one who built the tower, as we know. And this garment was instrumental to Nimrod becoming the king because it gave him hunting superpowers. This was the garment that God gave to Adam and Eve, to humanity. This is the garment that symbolizes the superiority of humanity over animals. When a person was wearing these garments, says the Midrash, all the animals, domesticated and wild alike, would kneel before the person who's wearing these garments. And when Nimrod had these garments, he had such tremendous hunting prowess, he was able to just destroy all the animals. Everyone said, wow, he's such a mighty warrior. And they thought he was mighty on his own accord, says the Midrash. And that's why they coronated him as king. And from Nimrod, they went to Asaph. Because Asaph saw those garments and he coveted them. And he killed Nimrod. And he acquired those garments. And that's how Asaph also became a mighty warrior, because he would wear these garments, these hunting deer, into his conquests, into his hunting expeditions. And when he wasn't wearing them, he gave them to his mother. And now, after Isaac tells Asaph to go hunt, he went out, and Rebekah gave these same garments to Jacob. That's what the Midrash tells us. So here's the question. Esav went to hunt for game, 
to deliver to Isaac. But we know he wasn't wearing his special garments. And the question is, why not? What a lovely question. Asaph is going to hunt. And the garments that make him a hunting superstar, he leaves at home. Why didn't he take his hunting gear? And we know the way the story played out. Jacob had enough time to get in and out the surgical strike to get in and out, steal his blessings before Asaph returned. So had Asaph done his hunting in a little bit more of an expedited fashion, well, then he might have gotten the blessings or stopped Jacob from pulling off the Passover heist. Why did Asaph go to hunt without them? Why wasn't he concerned, as actually happened, that he would be delayed in trapping the game for Isaac? Now, the Midrash actually tells us that he struggled to catch the animals. He would trap one deer, and the angel would come and release the deer and escape, and he trapped the second deer, and he's got to find another one, and it would be released again, and so on. He could have solved it all with taking the garments. The hunting deer that made him invincible was left at home when he needed it more than anything else. And the question is, why? This is a question that I absolutely love. I didn't see any of the commentaries that talk about it. So we could just savor the question. But I'll tell you, I did think of three different answers. And I'll share them, even though the question is better than all the answers. Maybe there's something we can learn. Perhaps, I think this is the easiest answer. This is all part of the Almighty's oversight. To make sure that Asaph overlooked this important garb in order to give Jacob the critical time and the necessary camouflage, the necessary disguise to pull off the heist of all of human history, the greatest heist of all time. Maybe. Perhaps the second idea We know that Rebecca revealed to Jacob of this plan to receive the blessing. But she was also the custodian of these important garments. So maybe Esav did not want to reveal to Rebecca that he was going out for a hunting excursion, fearing justly as it turned out, that she would try to orchestrate this heist. And the commentaries say that she actually overheard this conversation between Isaac and Esau prophetically. So maybe that's what withheld Esau, or that's what prevented him. That's why he refrained from taking those garments. Perhaps another answer we can suggest the Midrash tells us that Asaph excelled in one mitzvah even more than Jacob. There was one mitzvah in which Jacob was outshined, outclassed by Asaph, and that's the mitzvah of honoring parents. Now, many, many years ago, we spoke about on the podcast why in this mitzvah specifically did Asaph have an edge over Jacob. But the Rish tells us that Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, who was the leader of the Jewish people, he said, my whole life, I was dedicated to honoring 
my parents. But I didn't do even a hundredth of what Esav did. Esav was the exemplar, was the paragon of honoring parents. And even though we don't want to emulate Esav, in one area, we can perhaps take a lesson from him. Isaac, Isaac wanted to bless Esav, and he asked him to prepare a feast for him. How did Esav, the person who represents how we ought to honor our parents, how did he behave? He had an easy way to do it. He could get it done without breaking a sweat. He could put on his invincible garments, and in a second, he would have the meat that was needed. But Esav shows us how to do a mitzvah properly. He wanted to savor the mitzvah. He wanted to do it himself. He wanted to break a sweat and to labor to accomplish it. So he left his hunting gear at home. He did not want to take any shortcuts in performing the mitzvah. Perhaps we can suggest that this is maybe another explanation of the verse that Isaac loved Esau because of the barbecue. The barbecue, when he would make food for his father, he did it with tremendous dedication. No shortcuts. No taking of the easy road. Doing the mitzvah with all your personal effort. This is perhaps a lesson that we can take from Esav. We think of mitzvahs, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that, our oh, responsibilities, let me get it over with, let me disencumber myself from it. Oh, thank God it's over. Oh, wow, wow. I could go back to my regular life. We have a tendency to look for the cheapest, most painless, most expedited way to get a mitzvah over and done with. Perhaps there is a lesson that we can take from Esav to strive to cherish and relish and savor the mitzvah itself, not just trying to get to the result to get to the end, to realize that the mitzvah itself, doing the mitzvah is what we're here to do. That is what forges our connection with the Almighty on high to enjoy the mitzvah, to savor it. That, perhaps, is a lesson that we can learn from Esav. From the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, my name is Yaakov Walby. And the email just says, RabbiWalby at gmail.com. And if Esav cherished and savored and relished doing the mitzvah of honoring his father, I savor and cherish and relish when you reach out to me and send me an email or send me a text message. Don't worry about saying, oh, the rabbi's so busy, I don't want to bother him. This is the kind of stuff that we love here at the Torch Center to get bothered with. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you have a fantastic day and a wonderful rest of your week and an uplifting and meaningful and productive and inspiring Shabbos upcoming. In the spirit of Thanksgiving, I want to thank you all for listening. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week.